Disruptive CEO Nation is the place where young entrepreneurs and company founders tell it like it is when it comes to their journey, vision, technology, culture, and whatever they feel like. Your host, Allison K. Summers, believes how you choose to play the world is completely up to you, and her guests prove it. Now let's get disruptive. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This is Allison in Disruptive CEO Nation. So today we're asking the question, how do you go from thinking about a product to selling over 1 million units and being placed in on shelves in 600 retail stores in three years? I, I just, I need to know that story. So for that, I want to welcome Johnny. Johnny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us about who you are, where you're at, and what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm Johnny Fayad, one of the co-founders of Eat Your Coffee, where we're pioneering a new category of caffeinated natural snacks. Uh, started around three years ago with my friend over at Northeastern University right here in Boston. And uh, yeah, we make a caffeinated snack bar packed with 80 milligrams of caffeine from real organic fair trade coffee. So how do you sit in college and go, oh, I want to be in over 600 stores and I want to be on every shelves and office vending machines? I, so, so tell us how that actually started. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I can't say it started quite with that vision in mind. Um, it was basically uh, I was in a class where we had to come up with a bunch of different ideas to address a market pain. And, you know, my freshman year, I was working full time as a server. I'd get home like around you know, 11 or sometimes midnight have to do my homework until like two, three in the morning and then somehow wake up in time for my 8 a.m. class. Uh, most of the time didn't really happen. So I was constantly rolling into my financial accounting class like 10, 15 minutes late. Uh, wasn't doing too well, but uh, one of my friends in that class, you know, we were just chatting and kind of joking around about eating our coffee to get our day going quicker. Uh, and at the time there was also a startup competition going on on campus uh, so my idea of eating coffee and like that joke didn't really get chosen for the class to move forward with. Uh, but we figured let's enter it into the startup competition, see if we can win a little bit of prize money, um, and take it from there. And really what we wanted to do was just learn how to build a product. We didn't really, you know, think about this in terms of the long term. It was mostly like, let's make some bars, see if we can sell them in the library and actually get people to pay, like to buy them and you know, win some money in the competition. And uh, somehow people were buying the, the bars from us, uh, you know, out of like paper baggies at two in the morning in the library, <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, and then we, we won audience favorite in the, uh, in the, the competition. So that kind of uh, gave us some, some semblance of like, oh, this might be something real. So let's keep it going and figure it out from here. So you're a late night caffeine dealer. That's, that's what your business was, is built on. <laughs> that was what it was built on the early days of we'd go, you know, especially like around tests, we'd be studying ourselves in the library late and we'd take like 30 minute study breaks to see who can sell more bars. And so starting off as college students, it, and as you said, it, it didn't necessarily start out to be a, a, a business model. How, how did you, who did you look to for mentorship or for support as you were trying to say, oh, I, I think we really do have something here that we should go forward with. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we were really fortunate um, being students and being specifically at Northeastern University. There were a ton of resources available for us and people that were looking to support us, you know, starting in the Husky Startup Challenge, which was kind of that startup competition we were a part of. That stemmed from the Entrepreneurs Club. So just in that community, we were really well supported by our peers. Yeah, and then that kind of stemmed into the university has a venture accelerator called IDEA, uh, where you get paired with a coach, 
uh, mentors, uh, service providers, and kind of like a, a track to understanding how to scale a business. Um, and then on top of that, there's a bunch of other resources on campus uh, from like the law school to the design school to um, like the marketing club and like the finance club uh, where we're able to kind of lean on and glean from a lot of these uh, really great you know, organizations and things were, that were already set up in place and, and also just kind of reaching out to people. I think that was one of the things that really helped us was that we had all the resources around us, but we also weren't afraid to ask for help you know, at, at each stage in terms of like trying to learn and figure out how to get this going and understanding, you know, what the business model needs to be. You know, we had a lot of really great, smart people that, you know, we could lean on and ask questions and, and ask for introductions and kind of, uh, you know, play the student card, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good card to play. Well, as long as you, you've got that at, at that stage of your, your life. Um, so let's talk about when you had to move into mass manufacturing, because the, to me, as an outsider, I would say my two questions for you, if you could share a little bit more, is about, one, the sourcing of the ingredients, and, and two, the, the technology that you had to find to do this kind of mass manufacturing, or did you do a whole lot of manufacturing in the kitchen? Um, tell us about how you got those two pieces moved along at the start of your business. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, manufacturing was a big part uh, early on, mainly because we were making them in our dorm room for a while. Uh, the production rate was like 10 bars an hour, so it wasn't really uh, very efficient. Uh, we eventually, uh, after the startup challenge, uh, one of the judges there had a, like a business and he was using a, a um, like a co-manufacturing, not co-manufacturing, a um, commercial kitchen space. And he let us use it for like eight hours one time where we did a big batch of like a couple thousand bars. Um, but after that, you know, being in classes and you know, having homework and a job and doing all those other things on top of this, we didn't really have time to make bars all the time. So we figured, all right, this next phase, we really have to figure out how to manufacture this. And, you know, we knew we couldn't make the investments up front in buying equipment. And so we started looking for a co-manufacturer, which is basically a, a company that has all the, the equipment and things that you need in order to scale a food product, um, you know, specifically in our category, energy bars. Um, and, you know, you just basically pay them and then they do all of the uh, manufacturing side. So. You bring them the recipe, you work with them to make sure it scales up and uh, you go from there. So it's basically just a lot of like researching on Google, asking around, uh, you know, getting introductions if we could, but we basically just cold call like manufacturers of energy bars and ask them if they could, you know, take our line on and just give them the pitch on what we're doing. Um, and most of those led to big no's. Um, we were, I think, 18 uh, asking for uh, a thousand or 2000 unit runs on uh, a single flavor and they were we were basically getting people telling us you know our minimums are 25 50,000 units at a time you need to have at least three SKUs or three flavors um, so it doesn't look like it's going to work out for a while um, and then so whenever we'd get those that feedback we'd always ask for you know an introduction because we figured they probably know some other people that manufacture products um, you know being in the industry so we'd always get a couple introductions from that and after maybe 50 or so calls, you know, we finally found one that was um, a co-manufacturer, like that was new. They had their own brand and had all the equipment, uh, but they were starting to produce other products for other people. Um, and then so they were willing to take a risk on us early on. We've been working with them ever since. Great, Thorian. I think there's something that you said in there that, that's really important for our 
everybody, depending, no matter where you're at stage in business, and that's the asking for referrals, because mm -hmm. you can't have enough contacts um, and, and, and people that know who you are and who you might need to, and also to refer other people there, just because that wasn't a good manufacturer for you at the time could have sent somebody else. So, so that, in, and I love the part that you're still with that manufacturer. So what about the sourcing of your ingredients? Um, how do you go about that? And what's your philosophy about your ingredients? Yeah. So in terms of early on, I mean, we leveraged their kind of their buying power because we were producing, you know, maybe 10,000 units at a time. It was pretty small. We did a Kickstarter that helped us get the bars kind of off the ground to get some of that initial demand um, outside of the Boston community. But um, you know, it was, we basically leveraged their, their buying contracts and, uh, sourced from their ingredients. And then now, uh, that we're a bit bigger, we've been kind of buying some of our own ingredients and sourcing on our own. One that we've always kind of sourced from the beginning has been the coffee. We always try to make sure that it's a quality source that treats the farmers well, and, and it's always fair trade and organic, uh, as that's a central part of our product being eat your coffee. Um, but yeah, that's basically been the gist of it. You know, you try to, see what kind of uh, price breaks you can get on quantity, uh, but then also keeping really high quality ingredients that, you know, are not GMO, you know, meet all the other like quality control uh, things that we have in place. Uh, each kind of ingredient we have has the set of specifications that we need them to hit or they're rejected before they go into the product or to find out then the, the line is scrapped kind of thing. Um, and that's kind of my, my co-founder's domain. So early, uh, early on, about like a year in, we kind of realized where our strengths lied. So I kind of played more to the sales, marketing and fundraising side of it. And he took to the operations and finance side of it. Um, so he's been great in terms of negotiating contracts, finding quality suppliers and making sure that, you know, uh, the quality of the product is kind of maintained. And, and so let's talk about the sales because, you know, you go from the paper bags in the library in the middle of the night um, to the evolution that you had in three years. And that's, that's one that's quite a huge and fast scale up. Um, so tell us one, how you got that break into those retail stores. Yeah. So, I mean, the first year, um, since we basically stopped producing in our, in our dorm room and got a co-manufacturer up and running, uh, that was done through, um, a grant from Northeastern, you know, that venture accelerator, we ended up getting a $10,000 grant that they were able to help us, uh, Pay for our first manufacturing run. Uh, we had our friends in the de design school. One of them was uh, starting a student-run design studio. Um, so in terms of packaging and getting out of paper bags and wax paper baggies that were like, you know, held together with scotch tape and an Avery label, uh, <laughs> you know, they designed us like fully functioning packaging that, you know, looked beautiful and, um, you know, gave us some more legitimacy as we, as we went to market. And then to pay for more of it, essentially, and get some pre-orders and demand, like I mentioned before, we launched a Kickstarter uh, to get some press and get things going, give us some more validity and making sure that this is a business that could be scaled and people were actually interested in it. Uh, and that went really well. You know, we were fully funded of our $10,000 goal in about 15 hours and then went on to raise about $45,000 over the course of the campaign. And then so we took a lot of that success and all the press we got from it from being on like CNBC and Huffington Post and uh, one of like Oprah's favorite things gets Spiffy in a Jiffy. And we, we took that to like basically stores up and down the street in Boston. You know, we uh, had like a, a little printout that we'd take in with some samples and say, hey, we're students from Northeastern. We have this product. Uh, we think it would sell well here. And we basically just did that for about a year. Got into about 150 stores, did about 100,000 in revenue. 
Um, and that was kind of our first year of just being on the ground, you know, boots kind of on the street kind of thing. I have to ask, in the scale up, mm-hmm. who did you take with you? How, how did you attract your, your talent and build your team? Yeah. So, I mean, fortunate enough being uh, a college student and on campus, there's a lot of people looking for like experience and especially at Northeastern where we have something called the co-op program, which is basically every six months we take off time from school to go work. Um, You know, we something in our field uh, or, you know, whatever it may be. It's basically like a prolonged internship that you get paid for. Um, So we were able to do that ourselves. You know, my co-founder and I would switch off cycles uh, where we would be doing, what's it called? One, like one semester in classes while someone was working and then vice versa. Um, and then we had a lot of people around us that were interested in like gaining some experience. So, you know, whether it was our friend in the design school that was, you know, that did all of our packaging early on to interns, you know, along the way that helped us with sales or marketing or different projects here and there, uh, to eventually some real people that, you know, once we were after that first year and in some distribution and, and raised a little bit of money, we're able to actually pay. So, a lot of it was just from the general Boston community, people that we knew in food, um, you know, people that we thought meshed well with, with the company and kind of what we were heading towards. Um, and yeah, it was a very, um, it wasn't as structured as, as it is now, I guess. You know, <laughs> How important is uh, the social space for your brand and, and for building awareness for your brand? Social being like uh, like Instagram and Facebook yeah. and stuff. Instagram, yeah. Facebook, Snapchat, all of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, I mean, very, uh, very important. I think we leverage influencers all the time. You know, we try to get the product out there, growing our Instagram presence, doing giveaways. Uh, same thing with Facebook and uh, Twitter and, you know, every every single kind of way we can get things out there. And, and we're trying to test out some more interesting, you know, vehicles and ways to get in front of people digitally. Uh, for a while, we stopped sell- sales on our website and only focused on Amazon and retail, but starting uh, in basically three weeks, we'll be back on our website selling there again. So it'll make uh, the digital and social channels a lot more uh, important for us uh, outside of just general brand awareness, but actually like driving real sales. Uh, we do a lot of you know, paid advertising on Facebook, and, uh, trying to get some, some level of uh, awareness out there because you know, as a food product, especially in retail, you know, you got to assume that no one knows who you are. Um, so the, the more we can get out there, the better. And the more we're in front of you where maybe you've seen our product on your Instagram feed or pop up on, uh, you know, an article you're reading uh, for the fifth or sixth time, you know, maybe the next time you see it when it's on a store shelf, you'll pick it up and give it a try. So Johnny, you have such a great story and it's remarkable support network of people that you've talked about, but I know not everything has been perfect. And on Disruptive mm-hmm. CEO Nation, we like to talk about naked lessons. We like to talk about, okay, strip down. What was the thing that um, was a real tough lesson learned or just advice that you would share with, with somebody else? Yeah, um, I guess, yeah, that's a tough question, mainly because you know, at each stage, yeah, there's always a, a huge issue. Uh, there's always something that you think is the end of your business. And then, you know, when you look back, look ahead and um, there's the next one that comes back, comes as like the big problem. You know, the one that you were just experiencing maybe three, six months ago was like no problem at all. Right. So um, I'd say it kind of, is, there's a, a few things uh, along the way at each, each step of the journey when it was manufacturing the product and getting a product ready to scale 
like understanding that the product we made in our dorm room was nowhere near what it was going to be at manufacturing scale. Uh, you know, things change, you know, when you're getting your product out there, whether it's, you know, software or, or a physical good, you know, you can't expect the scale to go smoothly and things are going to change. We've reformulated a few times now. We've uh, rebranded now um, at least once um, and we might do it again in the future. Uh, you know, so lots of changes and iterations will be needed to be made to the product and you need to be open to that. Um, I think that's something that we've learned along the way. Um, from a people standpoint, you know, really defining your culture and taking yourself seriously earlier. I mean, it was tough for us mainly because we're, we're young. You know, this wasn't really started as a company out the gates. It was mostly just a way for my co-founder and I to learn and, and see how we can grow just as, as students. And then, you know, a year or so in, we started to realize, you know, let's, let's real legitimize this and take ourselves a little bit more seriously. Um, you know, so I think those are some of the early lessons we had. And, you know, I think also in terms of uh, sales and distribution, the most clear path that everyone else is doing uh, isn't always the best path. And then and vice versa, you know, being different isn't always uh, needed, I think, especially when it comes to one of our first issues we had was uh, we wanted our boxes to be different, like our displays, and we made them look like coffee bags, essentially. Uh, and there was like a little steeple top that um, we thought looked great, It looked, uh, but it didn't fit most shelves. Uh, when it was shipped, the boxes would get destroyed because there was a lot of empty space and the bars would move around. Uh, so there's a reason that all the boxes in the energy bar kind of look similar, uh, just for, for ease. Uh, so going against the status quo doesn't always work, but you know, when you think about the status quo of going retail and expanding there, uh, quickly, like we have, uh, you know, that's expensive. It takes a lot of money and time and effort. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential issues that go along with it, you know, in terms of product, making sure that everything is executed properly. Um, and there are probably easier ways to get to, to market and different channels that we're now in, but, uh, you know, wish we knew about maybe three years ago, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I think, I think your advice about, you know, status quo sometimes doesn't seem, I'm going to use the word sexy or appealing, but there is a practicality to it. And unless you can bring just a different angle of practicality, um, I do think that's a good listen, lesson because as, as I'm listening to you talk, Johnny, I'm adding up in my head the money spent on packaging design and the money spent on manufacturing the packaging and then doing the shipping and then finding that you have to scrap it. I mean, I'm adding up the money and I think that's a, a huge lesson um, mm -hmm. that you've just shared for other, other people and especially starting out because, um, I mean... I don't know, Johnny, if, if, if you can say, but, you know, I don't know a lot about retail and putting products on shelves, but I've often heard, you know, that the margins can be tricky um, mm -hmm. and making a profit can be tricky. So it's, it's more of putting your money where it's going to do the best for you to get that, that profit. Um, because like you said, this isn't, this isn't your college hobby anymore. This is, this is your business. Mm -hmm. Um, and so good, really good, good advice. Um, what would be any other kind of, of, of wisdom that you have um, for somebody? I mean, I think you've shared some really great things about asking for referrals and, and you have leveraged the influence of your network, it sounds, um, to the hilt. But 
what about from a, a human standpoint, from, from you as a, a person um, trying to deal with and survive in this scale-up mode? Um, you know, how does somebody take care of themselves? Yeah, I think that's something that it's hard to manage, especially when like your work is your life and your life is your work. Uh, because, you know, it's hard to separate and make those distinctions and like what is personal time and what is time that I should be spending on my business and, you know, making sure I'm growing for our shareholders, our customers and our employees and everything. And I think that's kind of the, the tough thing to grapple with when you're starting a company. Because, um, you know, to be honest, the work-life balance, you know, isn't really a balance, I think. And that's something to recognize. Uh, but, you know, also be just generally mindful of that you, are, you do give yourself a break every now and then, but also just understanding that this is kind of the life that you're in and what you chose. And uh, something that's gotten me through a lot of the tougher times is just this uh, kind of unnatural sense of optimism. Uh, I, think. <laughs> I think my saying is like, oh, future Johnny's got me um, covered. That's, that's my, uh, my way of getting around it in my head, the mental gymnastics you have to play from now and then. Uh, you know, I, uh, one of our, our sales managers is, always tells me that you must get a really great workout with all the, uh, the running around you do in your head of like, you know, making things sound good um, you know, for, the, for where things are at, at certain points in the company. Um, but yeah, I think that's always, always something that we're, we try to be is, and it's, I think it have a good balance of it with us, my co-founder and I, you know, while we were both business majors, entrepreneurship finance, kind of very similar backgrounds, both from California. Uh, we have very, very different mentalities. He's much more of the realist, you know, down in He's watching the cash flow. He's like, <laughs> exactly. but uh, I'm, the, yeah, I'm the one with the, it's always kind of keeps a smile on and, and helps, uh, helps keep the morale up and uh, he keeps us kind of grounded. So I think that that kind of positive and negative, uh, not negative, but you know, real um, has been a nice balance for us and kind of keeping us kind of level through the good and the bad. So if we came back and talked with you, you're talking about this, a natural sense of optimism. Mm -hmm. And so I like to ask my guests, um, where is that going to take you in the next couple of years? If, if we came back and chatted again in a few years, um, what would you like to share that was your successes or your new markets that you entered or, mm -hmm. you know, that you're going to be really happy and excited about? Yeah. So, I mean, lots of, lots of changes are happening at your coffee right now in terms of good, like our, strategies, um, which has been exciting. We're focusing more in terms of uh, direct consumer and building a more human relationship and more of like a lifestyle brand with our customers. Because right now in terms of like retail and Amazon, we don't really have much control of the customer experience. It's just, you know, we get the product out there and hope people get it. And then maybe we'll see them at an event every now and then and or um, interact with us on our website in some way. But outside of that, we don't really get so, so many touch points. So uh, something we're switching to now is is pushing more in terms of our own distribution through our, our website. And I think with that brings a lot more opportunities and creating a more human connection with our customers, you know, texting them, emailing some phone calls every now and then, including a little gift or a handwritten note in their, in their shipment, uh, shipment, you know, for some of those longer time customers. And that's uh, something we've been doing a lot now lately, but I think it'd be, I'd like that to see, uh, to be like a very much more integrated at scale part of our business in a couple of years. I think uh, seeing where the distribution of our business right now is at 80% retail, you know, 15% Amazon and 5% direct. Uh, I'd like to see that all those numbers kind of flipped where most of our business is direct 
we've built this really awesome, amazing experience for our customers that excites them and keeps them energized, you know, and part of the brand um, is where I'd like to see us. No, I, I, I love that strategy. And, and we all know word of mouth marketing, it, it, it works. And I think when you can um, shift to that lifestyle brand where, where people are just organically talking about you um, and, and so fiercely loyal to your brand, um, it, it certainly pays off in, in, in dividends. Um, so, Johnny, I appreciate you sharing your story with us. If people want to learn more um, about your product and a, about getting in, in touch with you, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, you can uh, check us out at eatyour.coffee. So no.com, just .coffee because we're all so energized. Can't be calm. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we have a little like a chat feature on there. So I, I manage that as long, along with our, our market uh, design content manager, Megan. So uh, feel free to shoot a note there and either one of us will respond. Uh, you can also reach me at johnny at eatyour.coffee. Um, but yeah, and then check us out online if we're in a store near you. Um, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully you eat your coffee soon. Yeah, and I can validate if you go on your website and the chat box comes up, there is a picture of you and Megan. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's it, as much as we like to talk about tech, technology um, and uh, I've had a great interview with a gentleman who runs a chatbot company. Um, it is nice to know that if we come to eat your coffee right now, that uh, it's it's you all that we get to interact with. So, mm -hmm. um, Johnny, absolute pleasure. I am going to buy eat your coffee bars for everybody for the holidays because <laughs> I know a lot of people in my network who would appreciate them. And I'm even thinking that I'm going to keep them in my bag for when I, I do my international long haul flights. I bet I can make a lot of friends sitting around me in the airplane if I hand them out. Yeah. Um, so if you enjoyed this episode of Disruptive CEO Nation, um, please like it, comment, and share. Reach out to Johnny. Tell him how great his product is. If you think there is an innovative um, entrepreneur that we should be speaking with, please send me a note at connect at allisonksummers.com. Until the next time, keep your eye on the future. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you, Allison. Hope you have a great day. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.